the book of Micah this morning. If you have your Bible with you, you want to open up to Micah chapter 7. Logan, you feeling good about recording back there? Okay, thanks, Lorenzo. <laughs> Micah chapter 7. We are drawing to a close in our study on the book of Micah just this morning and next week. Um, and I want to reiterate again that Micah consistently focuses on the injustices of his people and warns them of the impending consequence of their behavior. And so we have seen over the chapters of Micah, both where he has laid out and made an indictment against his people of their sins, and where he has warned them of what's coming, and yet done so looking beyond the corridors of judgment and seeing the hope that even still God has a plan and he's going to bring it about. What we get to here in chapter 7 is similar in that it once again addresses the sins and the consequences of his people. But I want you to notice even as we open it that here he doesn't speak to Israel, he speaks to God. And here he doesn't um, indict Israel, he laments, okay? And lamentation um, is what I want to focus on this morning, and as we've done every week, I want to connect the tissue between lamentation, between this, this idea of lament, this type of corporate prayer, um, and justice, okay? And so, as we read the passage this morning together, I want you to notice not just the things that Micah talks about, but the way that he talks about them. Um, let's, let's look here at chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly have perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. And the great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now the confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that by your spirit you would guide us in all truth this morning. And we pray that you would help us to take Micah as a model and that we would recognize the significance of prayers of lament in living in a world that is unjust and in longing and seeking and even acting for justice. We pray, Lord, that you would instruct our hearts this morning, and I pray most importantly, Lord, that you would make the issues of Micah's time resonate with the time we find ourselves in, Lord, that we would see that this is not just uh, the longings of Micah many years ago in a very different place, but that these are the longings of a human heart because they are the longing of the God that made our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that you would instruct us in all these ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Lament is a significant idea in the scriptures. More than half of the 150 psalms that we have recorded for us in the psalms are labeled as laments. Uh, Lament is such a big deal that we have an entire book of the Bible called Lamentation. And if you read most other of the prophetic works starting in Isaiah and working through, you will regularly see the prophets returning to this type of writing and this type of prayer. That's significant and important for us to emphasize because it's not one that is common to our times or our culture. In fact, oftentimes these passages, consider the book of Job, can feel beyond the pale of some sort of religious propriety. We can go, okay, well, that's how you feel, but maybe, you know, we, as much as we would not like to admit it, we find ourselves playing the part of Job's comforters and going, whoa, slow your roll just a minute now. That's offensive, right? On top of that, I find there is no human emotion that we react to more poorly than someone else's grieving or lament or pain. Just think of how terrible we are at funerals, right? The things that come out of our mouth at funerals, all they do is try and keep the pain at a distance. We just categorize it and put it away. He's in a better place now, right? Entering into someone's grief is abnormal. And, and for me, because for me, I'm, my emotions live way deep down in me and they very rarely break the surface, okay? That's just the way, for better or for worse, that I'm wired. And so the way that I think of emotions for me is like a rusted faucet, okay? It only has two modes, completely dry, doesn't work, and gushing. And I'm terrified of that. I don't like to enter into that. I am afraid to share my own pain because I'm afraid if I let it out, I'll never get it back in. Okay. And I don't think I'm alone in that. On top of that, when we enter into issues of justice and righteousness, these ideas of grief and pain and lamentation, I think they're usually seen as emotional consequences of pain that serve no purpose. In other words, it's a reaction to bad things happening, but it's not productive or proactive. And so I think sometimes we think that our pain hinders us from progress. I think sometimes we think that other people's pain is something they have to get through, and then we can roll up our sleeves and get to work. 
And strangely, I think that lamentation as it's presented in scriptures, even though it's the last thing Micah does in the book of Micah, should be the first thing we do as we encounter and respond to injustice. So I would suggest to you there's a lot for us to learn this morning. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things as we look at this passage. Um, First is, I want you to notice that this is tremendously personal. Look at the opening line, woe is me. And again, I want you to recognize, for us, that's soap opera language. That's not a real thing. If somebody says, woe is me, that's self-pity. It's something that is already hyperbolic and inappropriate. Mentally, if, if somebody walked up to you and said, woe is me, you would think inside, get over yourself, right? But the language of woe is, again, a consistent one used in Scripture, and it is tremendously emotional, okay? But one thing we might miss in this particular lament is that although this is personal, Micah is not just thinking about himself, And he's not just grieving his own pain. In fact, in the Hebrew here, when he engages in verbs later later on, they're plural verbs. In other words, here, he is not just lamenting for himself, but representatively lamenting for his people. Okay? And so if you wanted to know who was speaking in this passage, obviously Micah is, but I would suggest a better way to see it is Jerusalem personified. He is... He is representing the community, okay? Now, that is true of all the laments of Scripture. If you read the laments in the Psalms, for example, example, they're incredibly personal, and the happenstance, the events that lead to those are, are very individualistic. David is being chased by Saul, and he says, Lord, I am being chased by my enemies. It's, it's individualistic but it's been published, and it's been published for a corporate purpose. And the best way to understand the Psalms is not just as a guide to your own private prayers, but as a corporate prayer book that is prayed collectively. And so I would suggest to you uh, that this is written here not just for those of us who might resonate this morning, And I would suggest to you that the Psalms, even Psalm 22 or Psalm 88 that are full of dark and danger are not just for those of us who are in danger, but for us to rightly respond to the reality of evil, okay? In other words, what uh, Micah is doing here is entering into Entering into pain and then bringing that pain before the Lord. And that's what lament is. And so notice he he makes three complaints here. He has three problems. He laments, if you will, three things. The first one's in verse one there. For I have become as when a summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned. There's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Even there, you can see that he's not talking about himself all alone because the metaphor breaks down really quickly. How can he be, both be a barren, you know, uh, a barren vineyard and at the same time desire fruit? 
Instead, we see, according to verse 2, the fruit that's being looked for are upright, godly, righteous people. Okay. And so his complaint here is that as he looks around his community, the goal of Israel, God's significance that he's imbued in Israel, the reason he's made the covenant with them and given them the law is so that they would be upright and just people to create an upright and just society. Isaiah tells a, a parable of a vineyard similar to this. But the vineyard is the Lord's, and he plants it, and he tills the ground, and he works the soil, and he, he you know, fertilizes the plants, and he takes care of it, and then he comes looking for what? For fruit. And he doesn't find any. That's the same imagery that's being used here. But the fruit that God was after is the fruit, if you will, of justice and of righteousness. And that's not something that just exists in uh, systems or organizations. It's human, right? It requires people. And so verse 2, the godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Now notice here this lamentation is hyperbolic, right? When he uses language like everyone or no one, it doesn't mean that, you know, um, that the only person in Israel is a mob boss and now there's just a whole bunch of mob bosses. But when he looks at the collective whole, he says, where have the righteous gone? Okay. Where are the godly? And then he looks around and he says, the common characteristics of our community are violence, uh, selfishness, as opposed to sacrifice, right? And each hunts the other with a net. It's the Hunger Games. That's, that's what he sees, okay? A dog-eat-dog reality where only the powerful survive and thrive. He continues, verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Okay. In other words, they're practiced and growing in skill. Okay. In fact, the language that's used here says that they do this with both hands. Okay. They've become ambidextrous in evil. Okay. It's no longer just the innate and natural ability, but they've practiced until they can do it with both hands. Okay. The idea here is of effort extended and growing in ability. Okay, so the first thing he grieves is the lack of godly and righteous people. Where are the heroes? Where are the upstanding citizens? Where are the standout leaders who lead in justice? And that brings us to the second point. Notice what he says uh, in the second half of verse 3. The prince and, a, and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul, thus they weave it together. Here we see, as has been repeated and reiterated, that those same leaders who were commissioned for justice have become perpetuators of injustice. And so here, the prince and the judges and then those who need their power to accomplish evil come up with a deal, okay? So they're no longer defenders of the innocent, they're perpetuators of the powerful. And as they do this, they line their own pockets and the powerful, uh, you know, uh, are, are happy. And so again, his complaint here 
is that the very offices, institutions, and power holders who could prevent and who are called to prohibit injustice are the greatest offenders, perpetuators of it. And then he goes on, and the last thing he decries here, and they all work together, is the complete breakdown of even the most natural of human relationships. And so now it's not just enemy against enemy or tribe against tribe, but in the family unit itself, there is opposition and decay and destruction. Look again there at verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And so what he sees here is even the natural drivers of support and of love and of taking care of one another, even those don't function anymore. It's literally every man and woman for themselves. And everybody can't even trust their closest relatives. I mean, look at that line right in the middle there. It says, have no confidence in a friend. And then it says, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. Okay. This is your spouse as you lay in bed with them and you are afraid to tell them the whole truth. Right. And I think we have to admit this morning that as we look at these three things he complains about, they seem more familiar than we'd like to admit. Like, how much time do we look around and, and wonder, where are the, and you can put your, whatever hero from history, whatever upright citizen in the blank, but where are they now? Who are, you know, the Martin Luther King Juniors of our generation? Where are the godly and the righteous? And we all have our leaders and our guys and the people we prefer, but how often is it racked with scandal? How often do we take ends justifies the means of, well, I know this person has some problems, but at least they stand for the right thing here. In the church, how many more pastors and leaders do we have to watch fall into disregard, it resonates with us. And his second one, we look at how power is used in our country and we see inherently and innately injustice. And and the truth is we can't even escape from the last one. The breakdown of our society is evident. Just think of the way that, that 2020 split not just our country, but the smaller intact communities, our churches, and even our families. Think of the people this last year who no longer talk with their aunts or uncles or have separated themselves from friends and family in a somewhat permanent fashion. Micah's seeing the same thing and it grieves him. Think of the reality and the significance of divorce in America. And for those of you who are children of divorce, you know that there's significant pain and complication there. This is not a small issue. And Micah is grieved by these things. 
This is lament. It's to see these things, and this is important, to grieve these things, and this is also important, to bring them before the Lord. Okay, you need those three things together. There's a difference between crying and crying out. One is lament. Okay. You, can, you can grieve alone, but lament is to bring it, as we talked about, pouring out your heart before God. Now, I want, again, to, to recognize this morning the value of lament. And the first thing that lament does well is it honestly owns the reality of evil. And this is important. Because one of the ways that we can often react to injustice is shallowly. And so we think, for example, oh, well, we just need to make an adjustment in the organization. Or we just need to uh, provide more education. Or we, you know, we just jump so quickly to pragmatic solutions. And what happens over and over again is we provide band-aids instead of healing. Okay? Because we do not recognize and own the depth and reality of the evil around us. Okay. And our culture is very prone to this on a bunch of different ways. I'm just going to give you one illustration. We do this with medical technology all the time. Because we believe that technology can improve until difficulty can be erased. We just need better science and a bit more time and a slightly improved model and version 2.0 and we'll get rid of these things. And so here's just one place where it, uh, where it plays out. If you take children who were born with ambiguous genitalia, okay, going back to the 1950s, practices and methodologies were invented to make ambiguous genitalia less ambiguous. Okay? Now, those surgeries are plastic surgeries by nature. They're, they're not creating new genitalia, but facsimiles. And they're also imposed on young children before they're old enough to identify any problem for themselves or choose their own solution. So it's mostly in the hand of parents and more importantly of specialists who tell parents what the best practice is. Every generation, these people who have grown up since the 1950s experiencing this surgery have begun to speak up and say, what was done to me was not okay. It led to all of these complications. And here's how doctors respond. Well, but we don't do it that way anymore. And so they kick the can of consequence down the road of history. Okay. That impulse doesn't take seriously the pain it just quickly removes it and says, well, we've moved on. But guess what? We've been at human life for thousands of years now, and we've yet to escape any of these things. Okay? But that's, that's just one example. And so lamentation owns evil as evil. It doesn't explain it away. It doesn't seek short and shallow answers to deal with it. It says this is big, significant, wrong, and consistent. But there's a second thing that lamentation does, which is that it bears responsibility. 
And that's what's so striking about this passage. When Micah mourns these things, you go, but what about you, Micah? Maybe, yeah, you're the last, the only true faithful. But that's not how he talks. He doesn't make any exceptions, does he? He doesn't say, I'm the last innocent. He says, there is no innocent. And the truth is, we have this, um, this attempt right now to recognize injustice by identifying the victims. But it keeps leading us to this place where we cannot actually lament. Let me contrast it here. Here is the natural, emotional, proactive way that we go about injustice. We call it outrage. And it is everywhere. But do you see how outrage is different than lament? Outrage identifies the cause and distances yourself from it. In fact, I would suggest to you that one of the reasons why outrage is so attractive is because it removes us from responsibility. Because it places the blame firmly on the shoulders of others. But lament can't do that. Lament recognizes that if this is happening in my household, if this is happening in my church, if this is happening in my nation, that it is happening in participation with myself. That I am part of this community and therefore have not just the consequence of the community, but a participation and responsibility in it. Micah doesn't distance himself from the pain saying, not it, but he enters into it. In fact, he enters into it a way where he clearly represents corporately and prays in a way that his neighbors are not yet ready to do. These same judges who take bribes are still in a posture of defending themselves, of hiding the evidence, of denying the reality or explaining it away or saying this is just the way it works. Micah is willing to bear the burden of their sins with them, even though he's the only one who sees it for what it is. This is lament. And again, recognize the significance of the difference between these things. Why is it that outrage doesn't change things? Now, to be clear, lament doesn't either. But I would suggest to you that outrage has a responsibility problem. That because it distances itself, outrage is the first thing we do and it's also the last thing we do. And we dust off our hands and we go our way because we have given our vote, because we have made our position clear. Okay. But on top of that, Romans tells us that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, which means outrage doesn't bring justice. Again, that doesn't mean lament always does. The question is not if lament does what outrage doesn't. It's if outrage can do what lament ever does. Outrage, and we've seen it this year, continues the trend of division and destruction and the deterioration of society as we know it, doesn't it? It's moving away from each other instead of toward, but lament moves towards. It enters in and humbly bears not sole responsibility, this isn't scapegoating, but recognizes and owns the reality and grieves it. 
But the third thing that we see here is also important, which is that lament brings this before God. Okay. Look at verse 7. He says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord, and I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, this is important for two reasons. One, because Micah recognizes here that the only solution requires the reality of God. Right? In fact, what he's basically said is, our society is so broken, things are so bad, that I can no longer hope in neighbor. I can no longer hope in society, but that doesn't mean he can't hope, right? He reorients and he says, but as for me, and what's the context there? Let's read verse six again. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the men's of his, uh, men of his own house, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. Do you see the intentional choice there? And it's not the choice of despair. Okay. This is another way that we often respond to the evil of the world, which is nihilism. It just says nothing can be done, and so I'm going to just ignore it and escape from it as much as possible, or I'm going to participate in it because this is clearly the only option, and so only the strong survive, right? But that is nihilistic in nature. It's to give in to the dumpster fire of history. Whether it's let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, or let us pour fuel on the fire, at least from up here it doesn't burn so bad. But lament is not despair. Lament is always hopeful. Even if it's a blind hope. Even if it's a desperate hope. Okay? He doesn't here have some sort of presumptuousness that says, God's got this, it's going to be fine. I don't even need to do anything, it's just going to fix itself. That's not Micah at all. That would deny his entire career of being a voice on these issues and speaking against them. Okay. But he does hope. And he does hope in the Lord. Okay. And the second thing I want you to notice here is, is that the way that he hopes is far from instant gratification. Look at what it says. But as for me, I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. There is both a patience and a confidence. He knows the Lord will hear him, but he also knows that this is a waiting game. The word he uses here is the one that's used for a watchman. Okay? And so the idea of this prayer is somebody who prays with eyes open and watches the horizon, knowing it may be many days until the answer comes. It makes me think of what Job says. He says, I know I will see God's goodness in the land of the living, which is surreal if you look at what Job is currently going through, right? His children are dead. His wealth is demolished. His health is on the brink. He doesn't think this is going to turn around tomorrow like he's going to just wake up and it's all restored, but he knows that God is who he says he is and will prove himself as such. Okay. Now, what I would suggest to you this morning um, is, is two things. 
One, we cannot go about justice apart from lament. And it's for the three reasons we've already looked at. Because if we leave out lament, we won't take evil as seriously as it should be. If we leave out lament, we will distance ourselves from the problem and therefore remove ourselves from being part of the solution. And if we leave out lament, we won't own our need for God to intervene and save. Okay. Now the thing is, and you know this if you've ever gone through significant hardship, and it doesn't matter if it's homelessness or cancer or the sudden loss of a loved one, you know there are times where lament makes natural sense. When I was a young kid, before I even was a Christian, I got in a fight with my dad, and it was, it was rough. We both behaved like idiots, and we both shocked one another with one, each other's behavior. And so I remember getting so angry, I punched a hole in a wall, literally the only time I've ever done something like that in my life. And I stormed out of the house to get a walk, and I remember walking by my dad, who was also outside, leaning against the wall of our garage, just trying to process. And when I returned home, I heard crying, and I got to the dining room, and my dad was there with a suitcase with my daughters around his legs, and he said, I cannot stay here if, if this is how my son treats me. And I was driven to prayer not knowing God very well, not having a personal relationship or a habit of prayer. I'd been around church, I knew those things, but this was too much for me and I knew it, right? There is a natural impulse of lament when we bottom out. But the place where lament is especially important is for those who aren't there yet. The place where lament is especially important is for the well-off, for those who are doing okay, for those who are not currently experiencing these things. In Del Toro's film, The Shape of Water, there's a scene where a deaf woman is trying to convince her neighbor to help her rescue this creature from a government facility. And her neighbor rightly recognizes that it's really dangerous and could cost him his own freedoms. But as she's talking to him, she's signing furiously. And he's known her a long time, they're friends, so he, he knows sign language and he's hearing her and he's responding verbally to her signing and saying, no, we can't do that. And she starts demanding, speak my words. And he says, what? Why would I do that? You know that I understand signs. She says, speak my words. And finally he gives in and as he does so and as he hears out loud these words, he can no longer resist them. That's the significance of lament for the well-off and for those who are not currently being impacted because it gives a voice to the voiceless so close to our ears we actually hear it because we enter into the pain with our mouths and so I know it's awkward. Have you ever done this at a church service to read aloud one of the lament psalms and feel the distance? But you also feel the power. And again, that's why I would suggest to you that lament is particularly corporate. Have you ever reflected on the fact that as Jesus was hanging on a cross, he spoke the words of lament 
And again, because we're so terrible at lament, we can explain that away very quickly. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I've heard commentators say, he's just giving the audience a trigger of interpretation. If you want to understand this, read Psalm 22, and then you'll know, oh, this is the Messiah. It leads to the resurrection, right? And I also want to resist, as I've already done this morning, some sort of uh, explication of despair, that at that point, Jesus was out and he no longer trusted God. That's nonsense. That's not what lament is. But lament is always corporate. And yes, Psalm 22 is most and best personified in the reality of Christ's own crucifixion. But remember that that cross was willing and free. That the God of the universe, who is righteous, perfect, just, and love in his very nature, entered into the harm and the pain and the horror of injustice to the point that he could voice with his own God-made vocal cords the pain that we experience as humanity and cause to one another. That's lament. And it is, again, not that lament is just the right process that leads to righteousness. But it does bring justice. Even if we just fulfill God's call to weep with the weep. Or weep with those who weep. It does bring about righteousness. Even if it just reflects the character of the God who didn't just solve our suffering but willingly entered into it. But for us, as we see injustice around us, lament has to be a discipline because it won't be an instinct. Okay? It won't be an instinct because we're not brought to that place of suffering ourselves. It won't be an instinct because we're prone to other formats like outrage or problem solving that keep us distant from the pain. It won't bring about transformation and change. It won't be natural because we're self-saviors and we honestly believe that we can fix this. And so we have to cultivate the discipline of lament. It's essential. It's essential to being a people that care for and pursue justice. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we read things in your word that are clearly true, but seem so distant we don't even know where to begin. And we do, Lord, want to um, recognize and even express our gratitude that, um, that there's so much that you have protected us from and kept us from, but we also want to recognize with deep confession that we also have kept ourselves as a, at a distance from these things. That we have seen these things and looked away or averted our eyes or blamed someone else and not recognize that that love that you have shown us is, is the love that you have for all of humanity and that you've called us to make manifest with our hands and our feet and with our tears. 
so I pray, God, that you would help us as a community to not just know what to do with the lament passages of Scripture, but to stop when we encounter them and to enter in them, to pursue uh, empathy even for the things around us by entering into the pain, giving voice to the voiceless and hearing um, the reality of evil in full stereo. But I pray also, Lord, that you would teach us to do it in a way that is set and stable in the character of God and of hope. We are right to say this is not as things should be. We are right to say, God, when, when will you set things right? But that confidence comes not just from some moral sense that we have in our being or some scientific fact of how things need to turn out, but the reality of your character. And so lament is an expression of trust. And the truth is, Lord, we all need to grow in our trust of you. I'm going to read through Micah's lament again. Um, 